Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied forces stormed the beaches of France during World War II. This day would be etched into the pillars of history as D-Day. This year, as we remember the 75th anniversary of landing on the beaches of Normandy, we look back at the forecast behind the mission and how weather prompted one of the biggest scheduling changes in modern history. Today, we're joined by John Ross, author of The Forecast for D-Day, and the weatherman behind Ike's Greatest Gamble. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Marshall, it's really great to see you again. Oh, it it really is. And for those of you that have watched the Weather Geeks TV show, you may remember John because we had him on talking about this. And he was such a popular guest and such an interesting guest. We wanted to have him back and he reached out and we were able to make this work. So uh, really is uh, happy to have you actually in studio. We we, sometimes we are talking to someone remotely, but I'm I'm in the studio with John and he's such a fascinating guest. I want to just start off by having you Tell us a little bit about yourself and your fascination with history. Well, my interest, Marshall, has always been the intersection between natural history and uh, human history. And there is no time in history that was more significant uh, when uh, weather played uh, such a large role in human history. I mean, getting to uh, the nut of the issue, if the D-Day invasion had failed, all of Western Europe would have gone communist. Can you imagine the impact that would have had, all based on a weather forecast? And so you, I mean, it's interesting that you you make such a provocative statement right out of the gate, that the weather forecast was that important. Absolutely, because all the men, all the women, all the ships, all the planes, all the trucks, all the tanks, all the ammunition, all the, uh, the rations gathered there, staged in England and Scotland. Everything was loaded on the boats, uh, June 4. Some of them are already sailed. And Eisenhower has to postpone the weather forecast, or the, the invasion. The question in my mind was, how in the world did he know? I want to, I want to, we're going to geek out on this topic for the next several, several minutes in the podcast. But before we even get there, you've done a nice job of setting the stage. Can you just give the Weather Geeks listeners, because we have a range of listeners in all ages, they may have a vision of what weather forecasting is like today. But can you give a little context of just the weather forecasting in, in the 40s? I mean, we didn't have the fancy models that we had today, perhaps. Uh, tell us a little bit about the context for the forecasters and what they were using at that time. Imagine weather forecasting with no computers, with no satellites, with no radar. Right. They had thermometers. They had barometers. They had uh, wet fingers held up in the wind. They had, you know, wind speed and direction indicators, and they uh, could look out and they could see the uh, percentage of cloud cover. Uh, 
essentially, you know, a lot of these things were recording by devices uh, so they could uh, actually have plots of how things were changing. But this is essentially the same gear that a lot of us have in our homes. That's what they were using. Exactly. And I, I think about this in a modern context, John, and how easy it is for us today to pull up a, a, a geosynchronous weather satellite image uh, and look at the current storm patterns and systems over Europe. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have that at all. Not at all. And, you know, if, uh, <clears throat> at least half a dozen times during the day, maybe more, uh, I go to the Weather Channel app on my phone. Right. And uh, I look at what's coming down the pike because I want to know. They had no, well, they had no idea, but they did have an idea. Yeah. And uh, part, of the, part of the backstory that's fascinating about this is everybody knows about the Enigma code. The, the top secret German code. Well, the way they broke that code was uh, back in by the early days of the war, they captured a couple Enigma machines. And the Germans were still using the old international patterns for broadcasting uh, weather data. Interesting. And so uh, the people uh, were able to see those patterns translate by the German word wetter or wetter. And they said, oh, this is a weather uh, report. That's how they broke the code. Wow. And so uh, imagine uh, in the weeks before uh, D-Day, half a dozen weather ships in the North Atlantic, and then these poor guys who are flying uh, bombers, B-17s largely, uh, on weather reconnaissance missions, all alone out of the North Atlantic, taking weather readings. Right. And they would fly at different elevations so they could uh, sample uh, the weather at so different they're, heights. So they're using they're, – they're, they're flying at different elevations in the same way that in modern weather forecasting we use weather balloons. They're trying to get data at different levels of the atmosphere. Exactly. And the Navy uh, was using weather balloons. And the, uh, the airmen flying – if the plane went down, there was no hope of rescue. Wow. And occasionally, German weather aircraft – and Allied weather aircraft flew together uh, because these guys were meteorologists, and they many of them knew each other before the war. Right, and uh, there was safety because if an American uh, aircraft went down, they were pretty sure the Germans would uh, alert the Germans that there was a downed aircraft. Sure, sure. Now, I want to take this time. We're talking with John Ross, the author of The Forecast for D-Day, which is a compelling and fascinating story that we're going to kind of get all into. Uh, a little later, I'm going to actually talk to John about his book and the weatherman man behind Ike's Greatest Gamble as well, because I'm not as familiar. I've, ha I've had a chance to read The Forecast for D-Day. had not had a chance to take a look at that one yet, so I want to get some insight. But I want to get back to the, the D-Day Tell us a little bit about this group of meteorologists. Who were they? And, and, and we know their importance, but who were they? Well, the, it's, it's really fascinating. There were actually three teams of meteorologists. There was the United States Air Force. There was the Royal Navy, the Admiralty. And then there was the uh, British uh, Met Office, which was uh, sort of the civilian equivalent to our Weather Bureau. Yes. But the British Met Office did weather forecasting for uh, the RAF. So it was under the Air Ministry, though it was civilian. But all the guys in the Met Office wore suits. 
and ties or turtlenecks. And so uh, the Americans couldn't figure out who these guys were because there was no rank on their shoulders. Oh, wow. And uh, no fruit salad on their chest. <laughs> oh, wow. And so that's that's how we know who you are. Sure, right? sure. That, that I see that. And, and, I mean, was there conflicting information or recommendations that each allied country had regarding the forecast? I mean, I, I, I remember there's something about that. Well, uh, what's interesting is that... Um, Western Europe, uh, England, uh, 3,000 miles west of there, there's nothing but water. And so uh, their uh, method of weather forecasting was based on uh, that uh, still very murky field of atmospheric physics. Yes. Right. Uh, they, were, they were just learning that, and that was developed in Norway. Yeah, the Norwegian school, and the, the, um, the Wilhelm Bjerknes and those folks. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that was just coming into vogue. Now we've got the Americans. Okay. The Americans have got 3,000 miles of land uh, from by the Atlantic to the Pacific. So when a storm comes ashore in California or Oregon, you can track it across the country. And so uh, they were used to seeing the weather. And so uh, their forecasting was what? Sort of empirical? Yeah, sure. Right? Where the British forecasting was very theoretical. And that set up conflict like you would not believe. Sure. Because all, you know, um, all the material, most of the men uh, were Americans. And so the Americans, <clears throat> modest souls that we are, said, it's our show. <laughs> You have to take our weather forecast. Sure. <laughs> you know, you know. it's interesting as I sit here and listen to you talk about this, John. Even today, as I think about the United States and, and, and our very good weather forecast that we have in the modern era, where there are still challenges, though, is on our West Coast because there's a large ocean to the west of the coast. And so we don't have as much data. We don't have as much weather balloon information. We have satellites and other things. But... Many of those large storms that come off the Pacific into the Pacific Northwest in California, sometimes they do create forecast challenges because you're in a data void to some degree because of that ocean to the west. And that's exactly the situation we had with Europe. Precisely so. I mean, uh, you know, with all the satellites uh, we have, we pretty much know where the storm systems are. But the specifics of when and where, really hard to uh, predict. Yeah. And so I, uh, I don't envy you guys. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, we're pretty good at what we do. And 90 to 95% accuracy, I believe in the, you know, zero to three to five day range at least. But they're, they're still, as, as I was talking about recently with Louis Uccellini, the head of the Weather Service, National Weather Service on another podcast episode, there's still uncertainty in what we do and there always will be. But this uncertainty that we're talking about could have changed the course of history with this D-Day forecast. How do we get it to that June 5th date? Well, I want to take a step back sure. and go back into the different uh, te techniques sure, that were do. used. Back in the uh, WPA days in the 1930s, there was a project to transcribe 40 years of daily weather maps uh, in, uh, <clears throat> uh, for, north, uh, for the Northern Hemisphere onto computer punch cards, early IBM cards. And so that was done, actually done in New Orleans. Uh, and from those cards, 
the chief forecaster for the Allies, a guy named Irving P. Crick, believed uh, you could produ- – well, he produced uh, weather maps. And he believed from those historic weather maps he could predict weather anywhere in the world – 30 days to 60 days uh, in advance. Ah, yes. Yeah, I remember, I remember, I've heard this story as well. There, there are some ethical issues that surround people now that try to uh, do these deterministic sort of day-to-day forecasts, uh, you know, months to, to years out. I mean, we can certainly do climate projection, short-term climate, thing, using things like El Nino and uh, some other signals at the, the large scale. But sort of the day-to-day forecast, uh, beyond about... 14 days or so, you're, you're starting to get into the noise of the atmospheric system. It gets really iffy. It gets murky quite a bit. I mean, even uh, today, even in today's standards. I mean, the, you know, the foundation of his philosophy was not bad, uh, called persistence forecasting. Yeah, we, and we still do some persistence forecasting, particularly when they're large, high pressure systems and we see that it's going to sit there for a while. You yeah, can, and in other words, you know, if, uh, yeah. Today, tomorrow's weather is going yeah. to be largely like today's oh, unless something changes. Yeah, absolutely. But what uh, they didn't realize was that things were really changing. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so explain uh, to the listeners that, uh, the difference between the Arctic High yeah. and the Bermuda High. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we have a global circulation system. And one of the things that we teach in our basic meteorology class is sort of global circulation. And you've got this Hadley cell model, feral cell. And because of these circulation patterns on a rotating Earth with a warmer tropics and a colder pole, you have these pressure systems that set up. You've got low pressure and you have high pressure. One of the reasons the world's deserts are located where they are at about 20 to 30 north, 20 to 30 south, you've got these large subtropical highs that sit there and they are sinking. And so the Bermuda High, if you will, is one of those systems. They also govern how hurricanes move. Then you have the Arctic High uh, up in the Arctic regions, the part of the different global circulation system. And so understanding the behavior of these highs and lows, and then you superimpose on that, particularly at certain parts of the year, these transient frontal systems or what we call mid-latitude cyclones that come through, and you get a very dynamic weather system. So you so picture uh, the Azores high yeah. and the Arctic high. Yes. And then uh, they're rubbing against each other. Sure. And like big gears. Yeah. And so uh, what's rotating uh counterclockwise between them are these little gears. Sure. Each one of those little gears is a storm system. Sure. And so those are the storm systems that bring us the uh, rotten weather. Oh, sure. They're, yeah, that, they're that we have. Gradients and temperature because they're, they're you know, these mid, what we call mid-latitude cyclones, essentially these sort of, you know, synoptic and mesoscale systems. You you have gradients or differences in Air masses, because you've got the colder sort of continental polar or maritime polar air mass, and you've got this hotter or more moist air in these sort of subtropical regions, and they don't mix very well. They have, uh, and when they do, they do it angrily. Angrily, they get really, systems. yeah, that's right. And so, uh, think about uh, these uh, cold pressure uh, fronts, mm-hmm. cold fronts, sure, swinging across the North Atlantic like beads on a necklace. Absolutely. And then there was the front. It originated in Manitoba. And during that first week of June, was working its way across the Atlantic. And the question was, when's it going to come hit England and the invasion beaches? Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> you know, again, 
as difficult as it was then, we still sometimes, are, it's a challenge because we have the best weather models in the world and the timing on frontal passages and the severity of the gradient between temperatures at these fronts, even our models sometimes struggle with that today. Every time you hear about these nor'easters uh, along the on the northeast coast and who's going to have the rain snow line, is it going to be raining in Washington, D.C. or is it going to be snowing in Washington, D.C.? Oh, man, oh, man. I lived in Upperville, Virginia for so a number of years. all about Right it. outside of Washington, yes. D.C. Yeah. And if the uh, front uh, passed a little bit further to the west, we got rain. Right. If it was 50 miles to the east, we got 30 inches of, of snow, snow in the backyard. Absolutely. And I lived in the D.C. area. Even even here in the, in the Atlanta area, we deal with that. Now, you, I believe you live up in the North Carolina mountains now. So certain times of the year when it when you get a snow forecast, it's probably going to be snow. Well, and it, and the, the forecasting is fairly reliable. Yes. I mean, uh, things sort of twirl around in the mountains a little bit. But it's more a question of elevation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But here in Atlanta, for example, we deal with that. And the reason I'm setting that up is even in an era of very good modern-day weather forecasts, the precision or the accuracy of where those frontal systems are and the difference in the type of weather, the strength of the winds, that all very much depends on these frontal systems and where that mid-latitude cyclone is setting up, whether it's intensifying or not, whether it's moving a certain way. So we arrive at this June 5th date originally. Let's, let's go back. We got to go a little bit further back. We got to back a, one let's, step. Let's get back one step. Okay. So uh, the reason why... They had good weather forecasting, was the people who were taking the observations. Yes. And so imagine uh, you're on a destroyer and you're steaming in circles in the North Atlantic. And it's your job to uh, release the weather balloon, to track it, and to record its direction on a plane table, right? And uh, Or you're, uh, you're on the ground and you have to look outside and you have to measure accurately the elevation of the clouds sure. and their direction. It was the people who made the forecast, yeah. and that's what made the difference. They were dedicated. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Talk, uh, Marshall Shepard. I'm so excited about this conversation. I can't even speak to it. I, I'm really geeking out here. I'm just, I mean, I've, I've talked to John before and every time I talk to him, I've just, I learned something new. So I'm just, I hope you sense the same excitement that I have. Uh, John Ross is the author of the forecast for D-Day as well as the book and the weatherman behind Ike's greatest gamble. And we're, we're marching through this epic day because we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of the landing on the beaches of Normandy in the D-Day uh, invasion, which actually changed the course of history. And we're, we're marching toward this June 5th date that was originally decided. But then because of weather, there was a change. So pick up the story there. Well, and so uh, everything is all ready to go. Uh, all the planes, the ships, you know, all the supplies. But what was the one thing that all the admirals and the commanders, uh, generals, couldn't command the weather the weather 
That was the one uncertainty. Right. And so Eisenhower had to get the forecast right. And so there are these uh, teams of the Royal Navy and our Air Force and uh, the, the Met Office, each doing a slightly different forecast for the day. And so it came down to one man, James Martin Stagg, who was Ike's chief meteorologist. Everybody hated Stagg. <laughs> he was the consummate scientist. Uh-huh. He didn't give a damn about rank. Exactly. He could care less about what service you were in. The only thing that was interesting to him was science. Right. And so, uh, and he was a geophysicist. His uh, area of expertise wasn't weather at all. Sure. It was the Earth's magnetic field. Sure. And so, how did Eisenhower come to trust Stagg? And this is another cool human part of the story. So uh, when uh, Eisenhower and Stagg were in the same headquarters before D-Day, out at the Air Force Base uh, outside of London, Eisenhower's office was down the hall from Stagg's, and Eisenhower had to pass Stagg's office every day on the way to the war room. And so he would drop into Stagg's office, and he'd sit down uh, on a stool, lean on uh, a plotting table, and say, well, Stagg, what's the weather going to (laughs) be? Just like that. Yeah. The same way he would be talking to his barber in Abilene. Sure, absolutely. What he was doing was taking steely measure of Stag sure. to find out whether he could trust this guy or not. Right. And so when Stag uh, stood up before Eisenhower and Montgomery, who was the land forces commander, Ramsey for Navy, uh, Lee Mallory for air, uh, on uh, June 4 and said, there's, even though it's beautiful outside, there's going to be one hell of a storm. Eisenhower believed him. Wow. And, and so, it was all about that personal relationship. And, and I think that's important. It's interesting. I'm, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in, in sort of talking about this very important historical event is provide some contemporary context. You know, one of the things that there's been discussion about even in a contemporary context is, oh, we have weather on our apps now and we can get information anytime we want it about the weather on computers. But during these extreme events or during high impact events, people still say they want a trusted voice, a trusted human voice. Well, they do. And, and uh, behind all the technology, you know, whether it was in 1944 or whether it's today yeah. and what's going on in the Midwest, it is people. It's, exactly. pe- it's people on the ground. Exactly. And the other thing, you know, uh, the lesson for me in all of this is you really got to trust science. Yes. Be- I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because we are in an era where, you know, there are, there, I, I saw a study the other day published in the USA Today on different science topics and what the scientists, what percentage of scientists believe or understand that to be the case versus the public. And there were large gaps between the scientists' viewpoint on their science and what the public thinks. Well, and part of the problem is that um, scientists don't always agree. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, (laughs) there's something called the scientific method and published papers, and sometimes there's disagreement. Well, and and as well, there should be. Uh, There should be discourse, absolutely. Right, but but politics shouldn't enter into it, and that's a whole other subject. Well, that's a whole different uh, subject for a different day, but I think this trust that we saw towards uh, a, a, a colleague really could have changed history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if And if um, Stagg hadn't trusted 
the people that he was getting the information from. Now, on the American side, you know, it's easy to paint them with uh, a bad brush. But Stagg's deputy was a guy named uh, Don Yates. And Don Yates was a pilot. uh, And he was the one uh, who worked with the Americans to get them ultimately to agree uh, with Stagg's forecast. Uh, And so the way this thing was set up, Stagg would give the weather. Mm -hmm. And then Yates, standing uh, next to Stagg, would tell Eisenhower and his commanders, what the weather forecast meant. And so uh, it wasn't Stagg who was saying you can't go. It was Stagg saying this is what the weather's going to be and Yates saying this is what it's going to do for the bombing missions and the landing on the beaches and that sort of stuff. So what kind of weather was optimal and what kind ultimately changed the course of the forecast and the decision? So I, I, I'm curious about sort of what they would have wanted there and what they were looking for ideally. Well, the optimum forecast, what they called uh, the D-Day minimums, were uh, wind uh, blowing onshore uh, no stronger than 11 miles an hour and wind blowing offshore at 17 miles an hour. Uh, Surf no higher than six to eight feet because if it was any higher, all those landing crafts would capsize, and some of them did. And uh, that's what I remember reading. Unbroken cloud uh, at 11,000 feet so the heavy bombers uh, could see pretty well. Uh, 50% cloud uh, uh, at 5,000 feet. So the tactical bombers, uh, the tank busters, could get in and do their jobs. And the heavy bombers at uh, 10,000 feet could see spots where they could drop their bombs. Low tide. The Germans had planted all sorts of beach uh, obstacles. And they were convinced the Americans were going to land at high tide. But the Americans said, hey, uh, if we're going to clear the beaches— We've got to land at low tide. And to, to find out what those obstacles were, they had uh, frogmen that paddled to the beaches in collapsible kayaks. Can you believe this? Wow. And then went ashore and mapped the obstacles, uh, verified what they were seeing from the area of photography. Wow. Uh, I, I think that's a, something that many people may not realize. Well, and those guys were also uh, geologists. Sure. And they were sampling the sands to find out whether they would support tanks. Oh, wow. And so it's dark at night. Uh, they're swimming ashore. The Germans are up there on the hills. And they don't – this is sort of, the, I guess, the, you know, the, the special forces type thing. This is, this is the special forces, Brits, yes. who did this mainly. Sure. And so then uh, there had to be moderate moon, not full moon, but there had to be some moonlight. And they wanted to do it at dawn. They wanted to do it before the Germans were up. Ah. And so uh, uh, 50% moonlight, sun just beginning to rise, that was the time for the invasion. Wow. Do you think that ultimately, uh, from your lens as someone, a historian that has really sort of looked into this carefully, do you think ultimately weather gave us an advantage or a disadvantage? It gave us a huge advantage. Because uh, the Germans had really good uh, weather forecasting. And uh, they knew that uh, a front was coming. And so, uh, and you know, the, you know, everybody knows the story, or some people know the story, that Rommel uh, had gone uh, to celebrate his wife's birthday, leaving his uh, headquarters. He commanded the Atlantic Front. And uh, the German generals uh, commanding the Panzers, uh, we're all gathered in Reims for war games, 
with Fraulein's uh, and Mamzelles, mm-hmm. and so they were uh, they were uh, engaged in another sort of combat. <laughs> sure, sure. But uh, the commanders were all away from the front because they thought the weather was going to be lousy, and right. the and the Allies wouldn't possibly invade. Come, come in, right? Wow. And so the question uh, was, in my mind, how did the, how did Eisenhower and Stagg know? And it all comes down to a woman postal clerk in uh, an isolated uh, village called Blacksod Point, which is about the furthest west, northwest in Ireland you can get. Wow. And her job was to uh, read the uh, barometer and the thermometer and airspeed and look up and see the clouds and then report that Hmm. uh, to the Irish Weather Service. Now, there was a secret treaty between Ireland, which was neutral, and England. And the Allied, okay. And so uh, the weather data collected uh, in Ireland was fed uh, in, into uh, the Allies' system. Right. But Maureen Sweeney was the one who took those readings and confirmed the fact that the front had come through and there was this lull for about 36 hours behind it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So I, that, that's an interesting story there. So uh, in addition to the forecast that changed uh, history or the forecast for D-Day, that's simple weather observation. <laughs> simple weather observation. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the themes that really is emerging from this discussion is simple things that we as human beings uh, maybe overlook sometimes trust, a simple observation, a simple point, data point. Absolutely. Yeah. And trusting the science. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it, it keeps coming back to that. So can you speculate about what would have happened had the forecast been wrong? Well, uh, if the forecast, two, there, there are two ways the forecast could have been wrong. Uh, first of all, they could have gone uh, on the night of uh, 4 June and landed on the 5th and during the storm. Yeah. And so uh, landing craft swamp, uh, our, our real advantage was our Air Force. They couldn't bomb or strafe. Uh, can you imagine? Right. And so the invasion would have failed. Right. The other thing that could have happened is that if the weather had been good, all the ships are at sea, the Germans see it, and they know what's coming and where it's going to hit. There's no question anymore about where the Allies are going to invade. Right. Uh, and so Hitler would have authorized Rommel to move his Panzers to the front, and the outcome would have been far different. The other thing that is fascinating about all this is two weeks after this little window was the fallback date for the invasion, uh, the 16th, 17th, and 18th of June. Mm -hmm. By that time, the Allies had uh, put up all these advanced uh, artificial harbors called mulberries. Terrible storm, worst storm in 40 years crosses the channel, wrecks all these artificial harbors. Can you imagine what would have happened to the invasion if they had tried to go on that day? On that day, wow. Yeah, I can't imagine that actually. This is just so fast and fascinating to me. And, you know, one of the things that uh, my, the producer of this particular episode, Matt Reagan, shout out to Matt Reagan, did an extra job producing this uh, episode of Weather Geeks. He, he wanted me to ask you about the 14th Weather Squadron. Hadn't had a chance to do that. <laughs> tell us about the 14th Weather. It, it, it evokes laughter. Okay. And so um, I moved to Asheville about four years ago, right after I finished the book. 
And I knew the 14th Weather uh, Squadron was there and the National uh, Center, uh, NCDC, the National Center for Data, Climatic uh, yeah, Data. Which they, which they now call the National Center for Environmental Information. Uh, it used to be NCDC for sure. And, and so I was curious about how come they're there. Well, back when the war started, uh, they wanted to get these folks out of Washington uh, primarily to free up office space for uh, more important commands. Sure. And so they ended up in Asheville. All right. And then uh, right after uh, World War II, uh, all that uh, WPA data from New Orleans was relocated in the Grove Arcade in downtown Asheville because it was a great big empty space sure. that the government owned. Sure. And so uh, with all that data, the Air Force Weather Wing uh, headquartered, now the 4th, uh, 14th Weather Squadron, that began to collect weather services in Asheville. Not only is the uh, information services there, but now geospatial data is there. It's the greatest collection of American weather assets in the world. So uh, people think about Asheville as being beer city. It's not beer city, it's weather city. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast uh, talking with John Ross. And it's just a fascinating discussion. I want to pick up on uh, where we ended there because I actually have visited and given a talk there at what was NCDC and had a chance to meet some folks from that 14th Weather uh, Squadron while I was there. Uh, and it was a fascinating visit that I had. So I, I, I was aware of that uh, um, uh, uh, capability there, but I wanted to, wanted you to share it with the listeners. Now I want to pivot and you know, I want to pivot to your books, but just before we leave that, do you think these events shape the way we think about weather forecasting today in any ways? I think it does to some degree. I think that uh, people who uh, have a little longer view of history, uh, other than uh, the last three days, right? Uh, really understand this. I think that the uh, thing that uh, came out of this that really influences history is, uh, what are they called? The Gray Warriors or the Gray-Hatted Warriors? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Gray Berets? The Gray Berets. Yes. Uh, yeah, we've the, had them on uh, Weather Geeks TV show. Right. The uh, weather uh, meteorologists. Yeah, special jump, forces, though. Jump in, special forces, yeah. who jump in uh, with the special forces, mm -hmm. special ops guys. Mm-hmm. And do the weather. Yes. And they do the weather for tactical stuff. Yes. But also that's absolutely critical for strategic stuff, both in the theater of operations yes. and internationally. And I kind of suspect that had it not been for a great weather forecast at D-Day, which proved that merit, that might not be going on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, I'm, I've, we've had and talked to many sort of people from our, our U.S. military and our national security wing, and they, they talk about how critical weather and climate information is to keeping us safe. And so I want to take this opportunity to thank those uh, men and women of 
our armed services in general, but particularly those that are in the field of weather. Now, let's talk about your books. I mean, you have two books. Uh, one, yeah, well, you want to want to say one thing? Uh, well, uh, actually, that's a subtitle to the same book. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I actually thought this was the same. I thought the way it's written here, I thought this was actually a second book. So let's talk about the book, <laughs> the <laughs> forecast for D-Day and the weatherman behind Ike's greatest gamble. Well, and the the way I came to this was, you know, my father was a, uh, an Air Force pilot instructor in World War II. Yeah. And so uh, I was raised on a steady diet of uh, military history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always wondered, you know, how did Eisenhower know? Right. And so, uh, and Dad would take us up in a small plane by when he kept his uh, license current. And so we flew around. So we were sort of familiar with weather stuff. Was always fascinated by weather. Right. Uh, and so <clears throat> flying my ones from Washington, D.C. to Chicago, where we passed up uh, through a, a front of small thunderheads. And um, I looked out and I could see the lightning dancing within these thunder cells. And uh, the woman uh, sitting next to me uh, was frightened. And I said, wait a minute, look at that. It's beautiful. And she said, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating to sort of see nature uh, in, its, in its sort of element there. And I, I think for many of us in the weather field, it's usually some type of image or event or memory that kind of got us into the field of weather as well. Where can people currently buy this book? Well, there are two things. Uh, one, it's available through Amazon. Okay. Uh, and uh, Barnes & Noble, I think, probably has it. Uh, also, I have a, uh, a website. Okay, what's your website? Make sure we get that uh, out it's there. It's D-Day Forecast, one word, d-dayforecast.com. Okay. And so there's a summary of the book and uh, I think an opportunity to buy it. I guess I'm not really great in promoting my book. <laughs> well, well, we'll certainly help you do that. And I want to make sure I get it quick because I've been spending all of this podcast saying this as if there are two books. The title of the book is The Forecast for D-Day. And the weatherman behind Ike's greatest gamble. Make sure you get that book. I don't want to get, let you leave before I get your overall thoughts on the 75th anniversary of the landing on the beaches of Normandy. What are your reflections? A few years ago, uh, close just before the 70th anniversary, uh, I took the ferry uh, from uh, Portsmouth over to uh, France. And on board were uh, some British vets uh, who were going over. And uh, one of them told me the story about how uh, he landed uh, in Normandy headfirst. He fell over one of the uh, chains on the railing. (laughs) (laughs) But then I walked into the American cemetery, and I saw that great statue uh, with uh, her arms soaring to the sky and thought about all those soldiers, sailors, airmen, 19 to 23 years old, uh, who uh, gave their lives to free Northern Europe. And I think about all the soldiers ever since. And I think about the role that weather plays in their operations. Yeah. You know, as you as you talk about this, I reflect on a, a recent trip that my family and I took to New, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were down there for, I guess, a bowl game. The University of Georgia Bulldogs were, were playing the Texas Longhorns. But while we were there, we had a chance to visit the World War II Museum, Museum. which is quite good, I would say, if you're ever in New Orleans. And we watched the film, and it, it very much featured the D-Day. And I have to think, I have to say, as I reflect there, I, the, one 
one of the first thoughts that came to mind as my discussion with you on the role that weather played. Well, thanks, Marshall. You're too kind. You know, when I think about this, I think about the uh, interview that Eisenhower gave to uh, Walter Cronkite uh, back on the 20th anniversary of D-Day. And when Cronkite asked him, why did uh, why were we successful? Eisenhower's answer was, we had better weathermen. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave this Weather Geek podcast. I want to thank John Ross for coming down from the beautiful and cooler mountains of North Carolina <laughs> to hot and steamy Atlanta, Georgia, to talk to us today. Thank you for joining us on the well, Weather Well, Marshall, Geeks thanks podcast. very much for having me. Oh, I really enjoyed yeah, it. Well, anytime. You're one of our favorite guests, and so I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you. I appreciate you, the listeners that are joining us uh, routinely on the Weather Geeks podcast. I uh, hope you to continue to join us and subscribe to the podcast on all the podcast outlets, and we will talk to you next week. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.